Welcome to the Urban Guru Cafe. It's just that knowledge that I am, and that knowledge that I am experiencing this. This week, Already Speaks with Timothy Freak. I've become best known as kind of an expert on Christian Gnosticism because of some books I've written with a dear friend of mine, Peter Gandhi, who's a classicist. My background's in philosophy. And we ended up writing these books, the first of which, The Jesus Mysteries, was a kind of international bestseller, so that kind of brought our names out as academics. So the truth is, however, neither Peter or all I are, are first and foremost academics. I mean, we are in that, you know, we did a huge amount of research, historical research and um, diving into ancient philosophy. But our passion, and especially for myself, I would say, is, is really, you know, what's it actually about? And what is the ancient uh, teachings? What do they really refer to? And that comes because we both got a fascination for the mystery of life. You know, what is this? What is, what is this we're experiencing now? What sort of research have you done? Because you've done really extensive research, Hinduism and Buddhism and all of those. That really has been my lifelong process for me. I mean, the Christian stuff really came at the end and was a bit of a surprise because most of my life has been spent going eastward. And from a, from a young boy, uh, I, I had a, my first, what I would think of as a deep awake experience when I was 12 years old, and it kind of catapulted me into this questioning and search for what I experienced and how I could understand it. And so I ended up looking at the mystical traditions of the world, all of them really, both in terms of reading about them, but also engaging with practices and with people, and teachers, and trying to find anyone who could give me some damn clue as to what the hell was going on. And in the process of doing that, kind of picked up a huge amount of information. So some of it was like research, but a lot of it was just me trying to discover what other people had found out about life and what I could learn from them and what light they could cast on the experiences I was having. So you were chasing after this experience that you'd had when you were 12 years old. It wasn't depression or anything like that. No, not for me. I've had a very easy ride of it. I know a lot of people I know come through sort of breakdown and depression. What happened for me was that I spontaneously had this deep awake experience when I was 12 years old for no reason. It wasn't associated with anything. I was just sitting on this hill overlooking this small town in the southwest of England where I grew up and the world just turned inside out there was this incredible love there was this uh, overwhelming oneness and I knew something really significant had happened to me I just didn't know what it was and then spent well the rest of my life really has been exploring that experience and how I could get back to it and what it is and I found I could get back to it over and over again and it's my understanding of it has changed and deepened and, and you know I hope that process goes on forever. My concern is when you talk about that 12 year old experience that a lot of people will think that you know, they're never going to get clear on this because they never had an experience like you had, or they're not suffering from depression, or they're not alcoholics, so that they, you know, they're going to think, well, shit, if I don't have anything, any driving thing like that, like a past experience or depression mm -hmm. to drive me, then I'll never be able to see this. Can you say something about that? You know, what strikes me is that um, one of the problems is that we, we 
immediately associate what we will experience with what other people have experienced. And it's really unnecessary. What, what, what I love about life is that everyone has their own journey. And some people come to this waking up to oneness through uh, depression. Some come through life crisis, like being an alcoholic. Some come through life-threatening illness. Uh, some people come because they it just comes to them like it did to me when I was young. I mean, there's, it's absolutely unique. As some people, it's dramatic. Some people, it's it's very gradual and gentle. Some people, it's it's just different for everyone. And the most important thing is to be authentic with our real experience. Uh, and because what we're actually discovering is who we really are, and that is actually the background to everything. So it's the background to the most dramatic thing in our life, and it's also the background to the most ordinary mundane thing in our life it's always there so it doesn't really make much difference which way you come to it that's not the important thing that's just the story of your life that's what makes us individuals studying philosophy a prerequisite to understanding what our true essence is no not at all i mean a massive inspiration for me in my life is my mum and <laughs> uh, my mum doesn't read any philosophy to speak of much she doesn't talk about spirituality she's not involved in any of this she just kind of knows it and lives from it and i see people like that a lot and i love it i love it because it's so natural and Philosophy is my bag. Sometimes I look at it and I think it depends what your what your illness is. If your illness is a certain, if you've got a certain illness, then you need philosophy to to fix it before you you can you know get free. Uh, if it's a different sort of illness, then you won't need that. You'll need something else. How is it we are here on this path we walk in this world of pointless fear filled with empty talk? How is it we are here? And the reason why we're here is. To have fun, because it's all over too freaking fast. You said something when we were talking last time about neo-advaitans and us schools of thought, and you said something about having objections to their approach. I can't help it. I just seem to be a born heretic. So even amongst friends, I end up being her heretical. Uh, what's happened for me, Areti, is that 10 years ago, more now, I suppose, 15 years ago, I found myself going around the world talking and writing about this waking up to oneness because it seemed like the most important thing and when I was doing that there was a lot of people didn't really get what what I was trying to say but more and more did as the years went by now there's been an explosion I think of um, Advaitic teaching and, and there's been a new form of Advaitic teaching emerging which is great and a lot of the teachers are fabulous and it's there's so much about it I love because it's very authentic um, it's got rid of a lot of bullshit uh, it's direct and you know I love it and I'm often associated with that because my message is very very close in many ways the same and Advaitic philosophy through Nizagadatta and Ramesh Balsakar and a host of others Ramana Maharshi oh, all lots and lots um, has had a huge influence on me and helped me understand and deepen my own experience and, well, absolutely transformed it at one point, utterly. And like many people, when you discover that you're not really a separate individual, that there is no separateness, it's such a profound thing when you step into it and you find that you can step into it, you know, it's just there the whole time. 
there's a, a dismissal then. I mean, certainly for me there was. I just looked at what I'd been involved in before, the personal, and it all just seemed so trivial and irrelevant. And spirituality itself seemed irrelevant. And the whole journey just seemed silly because it just was what it, what, it, what it is. And you could just see that so clearly. But things started to change for me. And I've written about this in my book, which is coming out uh, this year uh, in your area of the world. I don't think it's coming out to the end of the year, called How Long Is Now? And that's really about how we can live in and out of time, in separateness and in oneness at the same time. And why things have changed for me is I became a father. I mean, that was one of the things. And suddenly I had children and kind of pulled into this amazing dream of separateness and individuality and the personal. And I realized just how much I've, I've always loved it. And that the more I experience my deeper essence, which is one with everything, the more I love the dream of separateness. I really fall in love with it. And, and that therefore, it seemed immensely important. It didn't seem like some trivial or meaningless illusion. It didn't feel like something to get away from. It just felt like a delight to be entered into. And the more I, I, I seemed to come back into this essence, which isn't in the dream at all, the more I felt I was coming into Tim's life and engaging with it in a, in a more passionate way, in a more alive way, in an enlivenment, really. And I wanted a way of understanding that. And that's when I wrote this book, Lucid Living. And what I love about the ideas in Lucid Living is it gave me a way of seeing this state I've been exploring all my life in a new way, which is that when you dream lucidly, you're still experiencing the dream. But you also know that you're the dreamer. And that's my experience of this waking up. It's like the same, but it's now. It's living lucidly. On the one hand, I'm Tim. I'm just this guy sitting here talking to you with his quirky experience and his own particular life and... That's an expression of what I am. And on the other hand, at the other pole of my identity, I, I know myself to be the, the dreamer of everything and at one with everything and at, at one with all that is. And that I'm both of those at once and that another individual is also the same essence in a different expression and wanting to find a way of honoring both. And what worries me often now is that I come across a lot of people, I'm not saying this about the teachers themselves because I don't really meet them that much, but certainly people who've been influenced by them who really are stuck in that stage of rejecting the personal. Mm -hmm. And what I want to see is people passionately entering into the personal and really living because I love it when I see that and I love it when it happens for me and those around me. So that you're really loving the separateness, celebrating it. But that's not the teachers or neo-advider that's actually, it's just people's interpretation and translation of it, surely. Exactly. I think that's exactly what it is. Um, but what I'm witnessing now is that whereas before when I was traveling around, meeting people, they would go, yeah, I don't really get the oneness thing. Can you talk about something more practical? <laughs> um, and now I'm getting people going, yeah, yeah, I really get the oneness thing. Why are you talking about the personal so much? And uh, that interests me, that there's now been this shift around happening and that the place where and I, I recognize it in myself, you know, because I, I, I went through that same stage myself. Um, and so what I feel myself drawn to write about now is how we can be in both places at once. Um, now, yeah, sure. I'm not I, I think that is the, the still the same basic idea that a lot of people are putting forward. I'm just aware that there is a common misunderstanding around and a rejection. There's still something being pushed away. And what's being pushed away is our, is our ordinary humanity. Yeah, yeah, I understand because a lot of people sort of see it as they have to detach themselves from everything and they just become these cardboard nothings with nothing to do and nowhere to be. And you know, I know. And, <laughs> and as you will know, you know, what's fascinating about people who have really got this, people like Nizagadatta, for instance, I think, is they're full of personality, mm. absolutely full of it. 
and able to express it in, in, in a very vivid and passionate way. And that feels, you know, it's such a mirror. This show is so spectacular. It feels, you know, not to enter into the game and, and to just milk it for all it's worth seems such a waste. <laughs> You are listening to the Urban Guru Cafe. Alright, so you call your delivery of this message philosophy and the Sagadata a philosopher. But others have said that your philosophy is abstract and you say, no, it's not abstract at all. What you're talking about isn't abstract at all. Can you explain that? And there's a line in the Tao Te Ching by Lao Tzu, which I, I love, where he goes, you know, no one's interested in hearing about the Tao because it just sounds so impractical. And I often think of that because I get, not so much these days, but certainly in the past, there was a lot of that. You know, it just sounds like, how does this help my life? Mm-hmm. Whereas actually, it's the most practical thing to do is to question life. Because everything we do is based on what we think is going on and who we think we are. And if we're wrong about that, we could be really wasting a precious opportunity of being alive. So for me, questioning things is huge. And then seeing this coming, this change of consciousness that happens and this waking up to oneness, utterly, I mean, it's an odd thing. You know, in one way, it changes nothing. In one way, everything is exactly the same. And in another way, it changes everything, which sounds paradoxical, and that's because it is. And the way it changes everything for me is that I find I'm in love with it. When I feel that oneness with it, suddenly there's a, well, there's a lovely line in the Gospel of Philip I often think about, which is a Gnostic gospel, where it says, those who are free because of gnosis, which is the waking up, knowledge, those who are free because of gnosis become slaves because of love. I love that because that fits my experience. Slaves to who or slaves to what? Slaves to love. There's an imperative to express that love for life. Everything seems to be based on polarity to me. That it's a very, very old insight, but that there is a fundamental polarity to think, like there is to our nature right now. Like I said, that on the one hand of that polarity, I'm an utterly unique, separate individual called Tim, who's here for a moment and gone. And on the other end of the polarity of my identity, I'm always and everywhere. And I'm both at once. And everything partakes of that polarity. It's all one and it's all many at the same time. Well, it ain't no use sitting and wonder why, baby. Even you don't know by now. And it ain't no use to sit and wonder why, baby. It'll never do somehow. I ain't saying you treated me unkind. You could have done better, but I don't mind You just kind of wasted my precious time But don't think twice, it's all right Do you think it's because people find it really difficult to let go of that personal identity that you need to personalise it? Do you know, as in, as in you know, because when people hear this message and they say there's no you, people just don't know what to do with themselves, you know, because, shit, what does that mean? And so they're reticent to let go of that identity. And so I kind of wonder whether telling people that it is a combination of both, when you've come to see that after you've probably spent a long time reflecting on what it is to be nothing. I think of it this way now. I think the biggest thing which stops people seeing the bleedingly obvious 
is that they're told they've got to get rid of something. And so they struggle like mad to get rid of something they can never, ever get rid of. They think that the separateness will go. It's not going to go anywhere. It's always here. As long as there's consciousness, there will be separateness. Consciousness is subject and object. It's separateness. So if, we, if, you know, if you want oneness, go to sleep. In deep sleep, there's nothing. It's all one. But when there's consciousness, there will always be separateness. The thing is that through that separateness, we can be conscious of the oneness. And then they're both there at once. So what I find is that people suddenly can be easily enter the state of recognizing the fundamental oneness of everything because they're not pushing anything away. They're allowing them, you know, they're not expecting that separate entity that they appear to be to disappear suddenly. Like in a lucid dream, you know, the dream doesn't stop. It's still there. Mm -hmm. And because it's still there, you can go, oh, that's the dream. Now, who's the dreamer? And it becomes a lot easier. Whilst people are trying to get rid of an ego or a separate identity, or so there's something wrong. There's something they've got to kill or, you know, all of that stuff. I think it actually gets really gets in the way. But if they can just go, look, it's just seeing the way it is right now. You don't have to get rid of anything. You don't have to change anything. You just have to see the way it already is. Uh, then it becomes a lot easier to see. Look around you. Can you explain how cultural prejudice substantiates your point that there is nothing that can be known with certainty of mind. Everyone's translation of reality is different given their cultural point of view. And so that, in a way, substantiates the fact that there is no truth to anything that the mind can come up with. This is the way it looks to me, that we are conscious through our concepts. And that everything, if I look around me now, I'm sitting in my, talking now in my little office in Glastonbury in the UK, and everything I'm conscious of, I have a concept for. Cup, microphone, computer, speakers, garden, chair, tin, shoes, ceiling, everything. And what I, what, as we go in, enter into life, we become more and more conscious by accumulating more and more concepts. And those concepts allow us to experience the, this great one thing of life as many, many discrete separate things. And by making things separate, we become conscious of them, including ourselves. So that what the mind is doing is allowing us to experience something. But that the, the price we pay for that is we mistake our concepts for reality. And then we end up sort of eating the menu, not the meal. Because what we're really experiencing is the great mystery of existence, which is before our ideas, before the concepts. So what we think reality is will depend on what concepts we've got. And what concepts we've got will largely depend on what culture we happen to be born in, what time in history, who our teachers were, what experiences, what friends we've had, all those sort of things. And if we don't question them, they'll all be fairly unconscious as well. We'll have just got them from somewhere. We won't even know. They won't even be ours, really, because we won't have doubted them. So the whole process for me is like we need to doubt everything, doubt everything, hold up those concepts, find the best concepts that can really open up the deepest appreciation of life. And, that, and that's the way to live. And also, and most importantly for me, become conscious of the fundamental mystery which those concepts are addressing, which you can't describe. It just is. It's our being. It's the being of everything. And if you put your attention on that mystery of being you start to know what is, rather than describe what is.
So can you explain how everything I believe myself to be is predicated on something that happens in the past and how this is not the truth of what I am? Why isn't it the truth? The dilemma we're in is that I have an idea of Tim and the idea of Tim, it's a collection of different fragments that are sort of bound together in some loose arrangement, often contradictory. One of the things we all wrestle with is we've usually got many different ideas of who we are that contradict and we're trying to make them into one coherent one. But all of them are just ideas. They're just ideas of who we are. What, what we really are is there before the ideas. Any idea we have of who we are is not who we are. It's an idea. So who are we? Well, we're always that which is having the idea. We're always the awareness which is aware of the idea. And that process of just going back before the idea of who we are is the process of discovering who we, who we really are, our essential nature as awareness, as well, well even that's just a word, <laughs> as, a, as the mystery of being, even that's just a word. These are all just concepts, trying to point to something which exists before concepts. But seeing that you are never who you think you are, you can't possibly be who you think you are. You must always be that which is thinking who you think you are, if you like. Mm. You need to keep stepping back and back and back into that something which just is. And as you do that, this whole uh, new state of consciousness quite naturally opens up. It's like the difference between being conscious of something and being conscious that you are conscious of something. Uh, we're all conscious. You know, I'm conscious of this experience I'm having now. There's a flow of colors and shapes and sounds happening to me. <clears throat> me is just another part of the experience, actually. There's this experience happening. I'm conscious of it. But if I'm also conscious that I'm conscious of it, I start to be aware of, of my being, which is witnessing this whole thing. There's no separation in the awareness and what is in the awareness, is there? The state which I can describe to you authentically is this state I call lucid living, which is both at once. It's a both-and state, not an either-or. It's not oneness rather than separateness. It's oneness as well as separateness. You know, I am still aware that things are separate. I'm still able to function in the world. I still um, am Tim with his family and his life. And I'm, you know, I don't know your thoughts. And I, I'm, we're, you're a mystery to me. You're a different person. You have your own integrity. All of that's still going on just as before. And, not instead, but and, I can step back into that deeper place where there's just one vast flow of life. And Tim is just an integral and part of that one vast flow which is being witnessed. And the thing which is witnessing it is not in the flow and is not separate from the flow, just like a dreamer is not separate from a dream. So those are both happening at once right now. And I'm conscious of it because of I'm, I'm experiencing this dream of separateness. And my feeling is that's the whole point. That's why we're experiencing this dream. That's why it's not a mistake. That's why our separateness, our individuality is not some error. It's actually the foundation from which we can experience the oneness. Our essential nature, looks to me, is really the state we enter in deep sleep, where everything is one, you remember, you know, but you're not conscious of it, because there's nothing separate. Everything's one. And it just is what it is. It's nothing and everything. It's potential for everything, but it's nothing. And you remember it afterwards as this great peace and this, this refreshment and energy comes from it, and, and there's this kind of blissful afterglow when you wake up often, and, but you're not conscious at the time. As soon as you become conscious, there's separateness because there has to be subject and object. There's separateness. And then you're separate. Now, the problem is that when consciousness enters this state of separateness, hurrah, it's now conscious, but, oh dear, it's lost in the separateness. It really thinks it is just Tim. 
it really thinks everything is just separate. And it's not. Everything's coming from one source and is united and permanently one with that source. But through the separateness, we can become conscious of the oneness. So the journey to me looks like a journey from unconscious oneness through conscious separateness to conscious oneness, which is this both and state where you're both in the world and not in the world, where you're living lucidly. You're the dreamer and you're a character in the dream. You're one with everything, yet you experience yourself as separate. And both are true. You have been listening to The Urban Guru Cafe. The Urban Guru Cafe is produced in Australia. Well, if I needed you, would you come to me? Would you come to me? my pain. All I'm offering is the truth. After this, there is no turning back.